good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. No matter where you are in the world, I'd like to welcome you back to another episode of Whose World Is This with Junior Renee Bobrun. If you're a first-time listener, I'd like to welcome you to this ongoing conversation that is now in its second year. Much appreciated. We're going strong. Um, and if you're a returning listener, thank you for your continued patronage, and thank you again for giving me your divided attention. It's much appreciated. Um, before we get started, if you guys like the things that we do here, please think about supporting this show because this show is is almost like a PBS show at the moment. It's, it's running on viewer dollars and the incentive of a particular percentage of the uh, audience that feels compelled to give or support the show. That's what's pretty much it's running on right now. I want this to be a full-time endeavor. You know, I don't want this to be no longer a hobby or a, or a passion project. Um, I feel compelled to do this because I feel as if I'm in service to others just by encapsulating much of the information that I do and just providing it and packaging it in a certain way that I feel is palatable to most people. So if you feel the compulsion to give a dollar or two or three or 3,000 or 4,000 or 300 or whatever, it doesn't matter. Please feel free. Um, and we can, you can reach us and you can support us by using Cash App. Our Cash App is dollar sign June Bow, which is dollar sign J-U-N-B-E-A-U. Our Zelle is J-U-N-Y-A. B-E-A-U-B-R-U-N at Gmail. That's Junior Bobrun at Gmail. Um, that's also my first and last name. And if you haven't if you have difficulty spelling my name, because it can be a little bit difficult, you can always look at the show title. Junior Bobrun is spelled out correctly. And that's my email, uh, my uh uh Zell. That's the show Zell, Junior Bobrun at Gmail. Um also, thank you guys. Oh, Venmo as well, Junebo, J-U-N-B-E-A-U. Also, thank you guys. Chavez House Publishing is our number one publisher, okay? Chavez House Publishing, chavezhouse.com. It's the number one sponsor of the show. If you go to Amazon and you type in Chavez House Publishing, that's Chavez with an S, C-H-A-V-E-S, you will have over 100 offerings of fitness journals, decorative notebooks from whether you're eight years old or 80 years old, whether you're in grade school or grad school, there's a decorative notebook for you. Uh, there's password logbooks. If you just in case you forget your password, there are uh, fitness journals, gratitude journals, daily affirmation journals, diaries, daily diaries, anything you can think of over 100 offerings. Please feel free to go on there and check it out. I guarantee you, there's a there's an offering there for you or someone that you know. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. A lot of things in the work for this show. Much. That's why I've been rattling my tin cup a little bit. I took a little bit of a hiatus. I think my, my, my uh I took a hiatus of about a month because I was figuring some things as far as this platform, uh, whether I was going to rent out a studio for more video options, which would be where much of the donations would come from. <clears throat> maybe an option where you guys can see as well because we're, we may add guests, we may add certain elements to the show, but it's not going to take away from the core dialogue, which is the most important thing. And people have emailed me. Oh, yeah, email is whoseworldisthis21 at gmail. 
Our Twitter is Whose World Is This uh, with Junior and Abel Brun. And our Instagram is Whose World Is This 2021. So please feel free. Email, Instagram, Twitter. Hit us up. It's all good. So a lot of things in the works. And um, it's not going to take away from the core conversation because people have emailed me and said that's what they find more important. When they heard about, when they've heard me discuss expanding the show and expanding the content, one of the main things that they asked me was, is this conversation going to change and your delivery going to change? I said, no, no, because it's, it's, if, if that changes, that means I've changed and I haven't changed. I'm still the same person from episode one or before episode one. And the delivery I feel is important. Will I break it up a little bit, maybe edit it a bit more? So I'm not as long-winded in certain time, certain places. If I find that there are certain redundancies in the conversation after, after listening to it or whatever, having an editor listen to it, I may edit it down, maybe, depending. Um, I may combine episodes. I may say, hey, that episode and this episode make more sense together as opposed to apart. Throw them together, mash them up. So things like that. So, you know, the conversation is going to stay the same. So please do not feel as if Things are going to be different in that regard. Now, what are we going to talk about today? Over the last couple of episodes, I've spoken about your net worth versus your self-worth. I've spoken about um, time versus productivity. Right. You know, I used to have this saying, there is a big difference between activity and productivity. I used to say that all the time because I used to hang out with a bunch of guys that knew how to be active but weren't very productive. And it was their way of concealing having to actually do the work. So they would use activity as a guise for productivity. And I used LeBron James as an example of someone who's probably had the greatest 20 years I've ever seen of anyone, of any one person, what he's been able to accomplish from 18 to 38 years old. So I used him as a case study in time versus time and productivity. Um... But today, we're going to speak about time, we're going to speak about productivity, we're going to speak about it in a different way. We're going to trend in that direction, but it's also going to be a reoccurring theme. We're going to speak about us as workers and owners of businesses uh, working from home or returning to the office, affordable child care, what does that mean to the child the mom is working, the dad is working, they're both working over eight hours, they're, they're both being asked now to go back to the office. What does that look like for childcare? Because this is what I've been reading. I subscribe to many little economic and business journals and this is the conversation now. Many different conversations. Let, let's, let's sort of list certain narratives that are existing right now. Okay, narrative one. People that have been working from home at their normative jobs, jobs that under normal circumstances, pre-government shutdown, pre-government uh, uh, action, they were working or commuting to a job five days a week. They were at an office. Now, over the last year or two, they have been working from home. And there's a narrative that says, the worker from home is as productive, if not more productive, than the, that same worker that was in the office. Their output is the same or more. There has been no, hardly any, no recorded decrease in productivity 
because that's what this whole thing is about, right? Being productive. So there's that, whether you're in London, whether you're in, uh, uh, in parts of Europe, Scandinavia, they've been trying it out in many different areas and in the United States. They've seen, wait a minute, our worker from home is as productive, if not more, than our worker in the office. That's one narrative. Narrative number two. The owner of certain companies is saying, we need our workers back in the office. It's better for morale. It's better for productivity. It's better for certain certain sectors where you have sales management teams and strategies. And oftentimes, maybe proprietary information that certain businesses would rather know that that information is in-house, not being divvied up amongst people that are in their house or homes. So there's that. We need you back in the office. We need you back here. In the financial sectors in, in New York City, you hear that a lot. Certain financial, we need you back in the office. This is how this works. The business strategies, certain things are being said, and we, we need it to be in office. We need sales. We need people to just you know, dip into each other's offices and stick their head in an office door and say, hey, what about this? What about that? You know, that sort of cross collaboration is important to productivity. So that's another narrative. Two, two very interesting narratives, right? Who's telling the truth? Which one of them is correct? I'm sorry, not telling the truth. Which one of them is accurate? Which one of them is the truth? Because now there's another narrative among certain people in the business community, big business, small business, that say people working from home now is having a, an adverse effect on certain business sectors that rely on people going into offices. Let's say Uber drivers that were maybe were commuting people in certain city sectors back and forth. Uh, restaurants, people who worked in certain city centers. I'm going to use Manhattan as an example because I'm from New York City. I've worked in Manhattan most of my life. I don't live in New York at the moment, but most of my uh, employee-employer relationship dynamic has been me being a commuter from Queens, New York, commuting into New Manhattan, New York, and uh, 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 working in office buildings, eating lunches, dinners, food trucks, well, not food trucks, but hot dog carts and stands and pretzel stands and coffee shops. That was my life for a while. As a matter of fact, the majority of my working life has been that, right? So those people are saying, wait, there's not enough people on the street now to sustain the hot dog vendor, to sustain the coffee shops. And obviously now you have uh, a surplus of vacant commercial space. Because if the worker isn't coming back to the office, then that means, wait a minute, why does the corporation need to spend this inordinate amount of money per month on this, this corporate Manhattan lease, some of the most expensive real estate on earth? As a matter of fact, there's an argument that Manhattan commercial real estate is probably the most expensive square footage on the planet. Okay? So corporations now are leaving spaces open. So now office furniture. I was reading I was reading about a business now that's making money just removing office furniture from office buildings because corporations don't want to have to deal with that 
with uh, not only are they leaving the office, but now they have to find a way to sell or remove the office furniture. So now there are businesses. So anyone out there who wants to start a business, that, that's probably a, a decent business model if you're looking at because businesses are all about solving problems and creating solutions and adding value. So a lot of corporations now don't need their office space and they don't want to deal with the furniture because that wasn't their business model dealing with furniture. So a lot of very expensive desks, very expensive shelves and desk chairs and cubicle materials are now, you know, just laying there, just sitting there dormant. And oftentimes landlords are saying, well, okay, if you're not using this space and you want to break the lease or you want to do this, that, and a third, it's up to you to sell the stuff or get rid of the stuff and leave it empty for me just in case a tenant comes. But here's the thing. So now you have that community saying, whoa, this is the adverse effect of all of this WFH. Yeah, it's great for the employee being home, but what about the peripheral businesses that were aligned with these commercial enterprises? The coffee shop, the lunch, the restaurants, the, the happy hour places, the after, after work uh, contingent. Most bars in Manhattan make their money after 6 p.m. Happy hour. After 6, 5, 6 p.m. So Monday through Friday um, from 5.30 to about 10 is when they make their money. From workers that are in the city and then after work have power dinners, power drinks, power get-togethers. And then they go home. If the, working, if, the, if the working population has been drastically reduced, then that means the participants in this, those sort of activities will be drastically reduced as well. So that's what's going on. These are the narratives. These are the predominant narratives that are occurring. Okay? And now you have more and more employers that are saying, we want you back in the office. The employee is saying, the numbers are showing that I have been more productive. People in my sector and in my role has been more productive working from home. Not only that, all this talk about work-life balance has finally been achieved. <laughs> These are the words of the employee I'm using now. These are not my words. These are the words of the employee that is working from home. They're saying, I get to see my kids. If I have, if you have any kids get to see your kids throughout the day if they're small or whatever the case may be you get to save on child care which oftentimes can be 25 percent of an annual income in certain sectors for certain individuals child care can be about a thousand dollars a month six to eight six hundred dollars to a thousand dollars easy per month to take care of a child for 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 six of uh, for the work day for eight hours a day 20 days a month okay that's how much it costs so now you have a person let's say a mom see a, a, a woman because this has been the conversation women have dropped out of the workforce due to child care costs and because of child care costs they have been out of the market. So now there's a conversation. Uh, um, they've been out of the labor pool. Even though being a mother is one of the hardest jobs ever, but hey, so I consider that labor. So when they say out of the labor pool, I'm like, put that in context because they're working. They're not, they're, not, they're not on a beach somewhere with, with a drink that has a little uh, umbrella in it 
and their feet are kicked up, taking care of a kid, a child, that cannot do anything for themselves. It's work. So they're, repl- they're not even replacing one job with another. They're doing two jobs when they're working from home. They're taking care of themselves and they're taking care of this other human being that's 100% dependent on them, okay? All right. So they're saving money, but dot, 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 okay? It's not easy because I've been hearing in certain business sectors how people, you know, certain business owners are feeling as if, you know, workers are getting their cake and eating it too by being home. If you're home and you have pets and family, um, you're not getting a break, are you? But what you are doing is you're able to check and, and, and monitor and identify all the habits and all the things going on with your kids. It's very important that I put your kids. Your kids. We're going to get back to that. And so the parent is home or the employee is home and saying, I got time to do things. And let's say you don't have kids, but I have time to go take a walk. I have time to meet my objectives, take a break when I see fit, take a quick five minutes to myself, a little 10 minutes to myself. If I want to stretch, if I want to jump to my fridge, get something, if I want to even run to the television and go see a highlight from last night's game, do that real quick and then get back to my work because the objectives still have to be met. And it's showing by and large that these employees, even though they're not under the direct physical supervision, and surveillance of their employers and their immediate supervisors, they are performing as well, if not better, than they were when they were in the office. So what's the problem? What's the problem? So employers are going, oh, these, these workers, these millennials, these these, these zennials, these, these Gen Xers, everybody wants their cake and eat it too. That's not true. But let's talk about what the employer is going through. They're saying, listen, man, we need you back in here. I need to be able to keep an eye on you, take a look at you, make sure that you're not trading secrets of my company and blah, 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 and being transparent. But guess what? What we've noticed is there has been really no reports of that. So that's unfounded. And then the business world that's saying, hey, we used all of this office space. What are we going to do with it? You're going to correct. You're going to evolve because that's what we all have to do. This is where my conversation begins. I'm going to start with a conversation that started occurring in this country about 30 plus years ago. When people started to see machines and computers replacing them. Dare I say 40 years ago. This is a conversation that was occurring in the United States. The worker was facing what they considered to be an existential threat. What was that existential threat? Technology. The robot was going to replace them. Many, many factory workers had already seen that. They worked in factories where they were being paid a, 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 a what was considered to be a fair wage that allowed them to live a comfortable life where even a mother or a, 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 the other parent or the spouse could actually stay home. Could stay home and do what? Be there for the most formative years in a child's life, which is ages one through seven. I like to always push it one through nine, one through 10, but it is one through seven that are the most 
formative and informative years of a young human being's life. It can inform and form who you are well into adulthood, well into you being a parent, well into you being a grandparent. You can always derive lessons from the first seven to 10 years you were on this planet. And there was a time in this country where a man could go off to work, earn the kind of wage where his wife, the mother of his child, the first teacher, the first nurse, the first chef, and that child's first love, that parent could be home with the child doing what? Providing child care for their child. Okay? Then technology came along, automated things, and the thing that killed the American factory worker was the robotic arm. That conveyor belt with the robotic arm doing things that the American worker couldn't actually do at the same pace because that arm can work 24 hours a day. So the person that was getting paid was the creator of that arm, the repairer of that robotic arm. But the employee, the human being, became devalued in this system. Human labor was devalued. Human capital was devalued. So after the factory worker, the office worker started seeing that the computer was replacing more and more human beings. The computer can itemize things, whether it be in accounting, in logistics, in human resources, faster and oftentimes more accurately than the human being. The human being and union, union labor, and et cetera, et cetera, would, we're, we're speaking to, 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 to the ownership class and the business class and saying, what about us? What's going to happen to us when these robotic arms that are in factories are now the robotic arms that are in the office parks, in the cubicles, when the computer is doing the job of three, four, five people? Where does that leave those employees? You know what the business world said? This is what the business world said. This is what the futurists of that time said. This is what the tech gurus of that time said. They said, technology is going to free your time. You need not worry. You're going to be able to work from home. You're going to be able to have more time with your family more time in your community, more time to further other endeavors outside of being just a laborer for a company. More time, you don't have to worry about commuting to a job the same way that you did before. You're going to be freer. You're going to work less hours and we're going to pay you more per hour. So you need not worry about the seven, eight hour day, not including the commute to and from the job. That was the cell. That was the cell. That's what was used. That was the conversation and the narrative that big business, the futurists that were applauding all, the, all of these new technologies and the tech gurus who oftentimes worked hand in hand. This is what they were saying 40 plus years ago in America in the 80s. And, and in the 90s, but definitely late 70s and in the 80s. That was the conversation. 
Don't be so afraid of technology. You're going to be free to do you with a capital Y-O-U. Okay? The reality became starkly different. As technology came about, the American workers' wages became stagnant over the last 40-plus years. Companies outsourced labor to emerging countries, saying, eh, the American worker's getting paid too much. I can get someone to do what you do for $5 a day, what I'm paying you $25 an hour to do. So, with that being said, I'm going to move my whole operation to this other country because it makes sense for me. And it makes sense for my investors and my majority shareholders. So the corporations did what was best for them. You have Gary, Indiana. You have parts of the Rust Belt in America that are left abandoned. Flourishing, thriving communities were left to die with no replacement. It's tax, it's property tax dollars that fund public schools and fund police departments, etc., etc. So if the people aren't working and they can't afford homes and they can't afford to pay income tax they, because they don't have a job to be taxed, they don't have a home to be taxed, guess what occurs? That city dies. It's strangled. All because of the businesses did not feel a covenant with their community. They didn't feel an allegiance to the employees that they hired or those employees' families or those communities. They left because it made sense for their bottom line and nothing else. It didn't make sense in any other way, shape, or form except to their bottom line, okay? They didn't even give the employees an opportunity to maybe buy the business themselves as opposed to selling it or closing it because oftentimes that's what happens now in more cooperative economical ideologies, but we'll get to that. So that's what happened. And then technology did something else. It tethered people to the technology especially in the 2000s, France passed a law that businesses weren't allowed to text and email their employees after hours, or that would be considered overtime. I left a job, a well-paying job, a very well-paying job, and a prestigious job because my immediate supervisor told me they judge their employees by how responsive they are to after-hours emails. Did you hear what I said? Did you hear what I said? They judge their employees, and if you're right for that job, and this was a job that was in the educational sector. It wasn't some high-finance job where I got to be on the phone with London and China at all different times, and I'm watching the fluctuations of certain markets and turbulences and redundancies. It was education. It was in the education sector. And they tried to, they converted the education sector and turned it into every other sector that tries to crush your bones. So when they told me that they were going to, I, they were going to uh, judge me, and value me based on how much work I was willing to do after work or when I was home, just because you gave me a company laptop and a company Blackberry cell phone, whatever, 
now all of a sudden you feel that I'm tethered to that thing when it rings? That means people weren't even allowed technology. The technology sector, the business class, and the futurists broke their promise. The promise that they made to the American worker 40 years ago was that you would not be tethered to work. That technology was going to free you. What ended up occurring was the opposite. It tethered people to the jobs. People are answering emails at 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night for a job they have to be present at in the next seven, eight hours. So you were on the clock now 24 hours because your job, oh, my job gave me a company laptop. Yeah, I have the company phone. Well, woo, woo, whoopie doo to you. Guess what that company phone does? That company phone tells your job where you are. That company phone is, I gave you a phone. But there's no such thing as free. Free is the most expensive word in the English language. That phone means I get to call you whenever I choose. It became a sort of paternalistic relationship to a certain degree. If I give a child a phone, that child better pick up when I call. You've been summoned. I got you that phone specifically to reach you. You don't need any purse other numbers in there. You need my number and the numbers that I sanctioned. And if I decide to call you, you pick up or I take away these, these quote unquote amenities. So you had countries passing laws, countries that are more adept at employee rights than the United States, because, you know, United States, their employees were born out of, you know, you know, slavery, saying the most lucrative endeavors that America ever went through to, to, to become a superpower. People had to work for a couple of centuries, you know, without anything resembling a wage under the most barbarous of conditions. But so I always say that's in part that's ingrained in America's DNA. That's ingrained in America's DNA. So here you have a country now that finally decided that had a boom or a renaissance of unionized labor in the mid 20th century. And that boom went away quickly in the 80s and 90s. And right now you only have 10% of American employees that actually know how to collectively bargain with their employee and have any sort of leverage whatsoever to negotiate with said employee. Everybody else is under the do it or else dictum. Do it or go elsewhere. Do it or else, go elsewhere. Right? You get promoted to applicant if you don't do these things. So people did them. But in other countries, in Europe and in France, where they're accustomed to unionized labor, they're accustomed to collective bargaining, they're accustomed to certain things and socialized certain sort of employment, they fought back and they won. So employee employers were no longer allowed to just call because I used to tell people, you, if I'm out of the office and you call me, I consider that work. I consider going to work, work, working, work, and um, getting home from work, work. That's why I had a huge problem with not getting paid for my lunch breaks. Oftentimes, job, the work day was oftentimes nine hours. But you get an hour for lunch that I didn't get paid for. And I found that to be... I found that to be quite disingenuous and I found that to be a play on words because I'm taking a lunch break. I can't afford to go anyplace else but be in close proximity to this job. I should get paid. 
because I'm technically not off. Technically, I am not off from work. I'm just on break from work. But I'm still technically on the clock. Why? Because if I come in two, three minutes after my lunch break, we're going to have a problem. You're going to have a problem with me as my employer. Am I correct? You still need me here. Right? So that means I'm still on the clock. That means, hello, pay me. <clears throat> so I had a problem with lunch breaks that weren't paid for because I'm still at work. I have a problem with not getting paid at least a half hour to get to work because that's work, getting to work on time. So technology didn't free up the American worker. The American worker worked harder under technology than they ever had ever. And guess what happened in the, in the, in the, in the uh, short term? American business went through the most successful era in American business. Actually, they went through the most successful era in business, period, over the last 30 to 40 years while technology made its boom. The employer, employee became more tethered, had to work harder, had to work longer hours. And business were able to stagnate wages, outsource employment overseas, use more technology, and guess what happened? You have had more millionaires and more billionaires created because of that dynamic alone, not because of innovation, not because of genius, but because of the stagnation of the wage and the certain technologies that were abound that kept the wages down and kept productivity up. That's the dynamic that's created most of the wealth in America over the last quarter of a century. This is, you can look it up. I'm not speaking from some leftist Marxist economist. Look it up. Not me. This isn't, this isn't June or June is talking. No, no, no. This is what it is. So guess what's happening right now? When the employees, because I've been reading a lot of things on LinkedIn or New York Times business, whatever, whatever, in a lot of different forums. Guess what I've been hearing? Businesses saying, who, how dare these, this is the words that were used from an actual successful business owner who iron or coincidentally is in the real is in uh in real estate in real estate capital and moves money around for developers big developers so obviously he has skin in this game and he said what 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 gave these employees the right these are the words he used the right to feel so entitled these are the words he used to feel that they can work from their homes. What gives them the right to think that they can ask for a shortened work week? It's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. This is verbatim. I have this written down in front of me. I had to write this down because I couldn't believe you were saying it, but I knew that this is what they felt. Um, there's a person who does a show. The name of the show is Bar Rescue. This uh, he's from New York City. He does a show called Bar Rescue. And I, I saw an interview with him. On, I think it was on the news or somewhere, a clip. And he said that people should be getting paid less for the work that they do. So when people go hungry, he was completely against the PPP loans, which were the loans that were handed out to people that were adversely affected due to government shutdowns. You notice I never used the word pandemic. To, to, to explain away what occurred to us in the last two, three years. I don't blame COVID. I blame government's response to COVID. 
because I've lived in certain states and I know people that live in states that were adversely affected due to government protocol and other states that flourished due to government protocol. Those so many of the adverse effects that many of you were feeling were not due to your health, but due to your government's decision to shut down businesses without having the actual conversation and creating a fluid conversation. Other states were doing it. From the beginning, I said, you shouldn't shut things down the way you're shutting them down. I'm not saying don't shut them down. I'm saying you cannot do it this way without, without contingencies in place. I know this is happening in real time, but I was saying that in real time. And I was standing 10 toes down in 2020 on that. And I have, not, I have evidence to back me up now in 2023 that I was right. And people who, were, people who thought the way I thought were right. And the other sides were wrong. So all the, the, the supply chains, the logistics, the shutdowns, the layoffs, the people that are into, in foreclosure, uh, the, the used car market going through the roof, the, 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 the new car market through the roof, the inflation when you go look to, get, to buy a, a, a carton of eggs or, um, uh, and milk, all of that is government policy, not pandemic. And people say, oh, that was uh, that's reaction and response. Wasn't the actual ailment. The cure was worse than the disease. Moving on. So now you have the business class saying, how dare they? How dare the workers think that they could work from home and do this, that and the third? You know what my response was? And I had this response recently. I spoke directly to this person and I said, this was the promise that capital made to the employee. Four decades ago, this and this man was an older man. So, you know, I wasn't privy to these conversations. I read these conversations afterwards. I was reading all the magazines and all the business books and everything and such. As, but he was alive during this era. He had enough gray hairs to remember this conversation. And I said, what's going on now is the promise that was made to the American worker 40 years ago. That technology was going to free them up. That technology was going to free them up to enter into other endeavors during the day, the work day, where they would be able to spend more time with their families, where it was going to be a new way of looking at the business relationship between employer and employee. The employee would now have freer time to endeavor into other activities, maybe learn on their own time, not have to go into a school but actually take those classes on a computer to upgrade themselves, spend time more with their communities, l flourish and furnish more hobbies. I said, this is what's going on. This was the promise that technology made to the worker and didn't keep and broke for four decades while capital got rich and rich and rich beyond belief. He didn't know how to respond to that. Matter of fact, he didn't. He didn't respond. Other people responded to him and sort of lambasted him for saying that people are feeling entitled, that the average worker f is feeling entitled. So I came with some statistics because you know me, June loves his numbers, right? So I brought some numbers to his attention. And this is the numbers that I brought to his attention. Okay? Because this person said they were so confused about where this entitlement was coming from. I said, there's nothing confusing about it. The average new car price in 2023 is $48,000 a year. 
that's almost commensurate to the average American worker's salary. So let me get this straight. The average new car costs as much as an American worker makes per year? And the average used car is $33,000, which is still in the neighborhood of what the American worker makes per year in a country that has pretty much no viable public transportation speak to speak of, public transportation system to speak of. I'm from New York City, so I was able to take advantage of public transportation. Didn't have to get a car. Sometimes my cars broke down and you know what I did? I'd be like, oh, sell it, sell it for parts. I don't need the car until I get another one. I'll just jump on the bus and train. I had that as an option. 95% of Americans living in the United States of America do not have that as an option. If you live in Texas, it's not an option. You live in Nebraska, it's not an option. You live in most parts of Illinois, it's not an option. You live in the Chicago metro area. It's great. You live in Florida, North Carolina, this place. Atlanta, it's an option. You get to use the MARTA. What if you don't live in Atlanta? Do you use that option if you're living in, 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 in Albany, Georgia? Huh? Is that an option? Don't think so. so. So now a person saying that, wait a minute, the same way businesses cut costs and, and, and ditched these cities, back in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and left cities to die because they wanted to cut costs and keep revenue high or, or, or to satisfy shareholder growth. That they would just fire employees because, huh, yeah, yeah, stock market, uh, we need our stock price to go up and we need more liquidity and cash on hand. So maybe we should, you know, downsize about a, a, a significant segment of our workforce even though the quality of the service or whatever we provide may be compromised by said by said action. But however, our stock price will go up and it'll satisfy shareholders in the interim. That's the conversation, people. That was the conversation that strangled your cities. That's the conversation that occurred. So the American employee now for the first time had an opportunity First time in 40 years to have the opportunity to take advantage of the promises that were made to them that technology was supposed to bring. And now the business class that had four decades of unfettered and unmolested growth at an exponential rate are now complaining. How dare you feel so entitled? How dare you? How dare you not want to spend $48,000 on a new car? How dare you not want to spend $33,000 on a used car? How dare you? Yes, I know we didn't provide any public transportation, any universal public transportation, or any tax subsidies for lower income workers to take these public transportations because 95% of the country doesn't have public transportation. You have to get a car to get to and from work. And you're going to have to spend $48,000 or $33,000 to do it. Oh, let's not forget the childcare costs because the further away you get from your village, you're going to need someone to take care of this child that you... Oh, wardrobe costs. Let's not talk about that. Oh, okay. Wait a minute. So you're so the employee is looking at themselves and looking at these costs the same way businesses look at their costs. And they look at an employee like a cost. That's why employees get downsized and laid off for numerical reasons, not for job performance reasons. 
you can get laid off no matter how great of an employee you are. But because they looked at you and said, eh, it's more valuable to us that our shareholders get their return at the end of this quarter than it is for you to have a job and take care of you and your family and be a, 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 and a, be a pillar of your community and, and a contributing factor to the United States' economy. Sorry, bye-bye. That's what occurred in the United States. That's what occurs in the United States of America. That is the business philosophy. I worked on Wall Street, people. I worked on Wall Street. This conversation was easy. They were like, oh, yeah, such and such is going down, uh, to downsize 5,000 people. The stock's going to go up. Sell that to the people on the phone that people are getting fired today. 5,000 people are going to be without work today. Sell that as a selling point for this stock. I was there in those rooms making those calls. So they're going to have such and such amount of money on hand and that's going to bring the stock price up. And then people on the phone will be like, oh, great, awesome. Okay, there's a reason why I'm not on Wall Street right now because I couldn't even believe the inverse relationship between what America considered successful, what the business world thought success meant and how the metric that they were using for success. Remember self-worth and net worth? If I can recall, I mentioned a laborer, a labor activist in the United States in the 1800s that said for America to have a true and abiding society, it has to have money on one scale and humanity on another. Or something along those lines. Do you remember that? Go back to that episode. Do you remember that? To have an abiding society, a compelling abiding society that is sustainable for its people, you have to have money on one scale and people on another. It cannot be weighed the same. But that's what was happening. People were only worth their weight in gold. And so companies downsized you because you were a cost. So what if employees want to downsize the cost of going to work, of going into an office, not working, but commuting to work? Do you know how much it costs the average employee to have to go to a job to do something that they can do from the comforts of their own home because of the technology? So I don't have to buy this newer used car. This used car for $33,000 a year. Let's say you have a car note of about $300 a month for this car. And your insurance is about $100 a month for this car. And then you have to worry about gas, which is hmm, daily commutes, twenty at least 20 days a month for the job. That's going to be with, with the price of price of fuel such as it is such as it is that's another hundred dollars so that's about 500 plus dollars just for the car to be on the road not including maintenance not including maintenance just to have the car on the road is going to cost you 500 dollars per month okay okay Six about what's that? Six thousand a year? Is that what that is? So it's about six plus thousand dollars a year before you even fix this thing. Okay? That's a significant portion. What if you have a child? If you're off to this office, guess what's occurring now? Hmm? Your childcare costs are oftentimes more than your car costs. Because you can't find a decent daycare for five hundred dollars a month. A decent daycare is going to run you between six to eight hundred to a thousand dollars per month. 
So between that car, which is 6000 per month, and that daycare, which can run you about eight, 9000 per month, that's about $15,000 a year between the car and the child care costs. You're making $50,000 per year before taxes. Okay? What are we talking about, people? What are we talking about? Hmm? So $50,000 a year minus the taxes, which is going to run you about, I don't know, what is that? 33% for most of us out here? Hmm? About what is that? $17,000, $20,000? About $17,000 a year? So that's 17000 you're getting out of your check. So what's that? About what? About 40, what? 30 something thousand you're making? And 15 of that is going to the car and daycare? So you're left with $15,000 to feed yourself, to clothe yourself, and to feed and clothe someone else? And a person can actually save that 15 if all they have to do is just be in the house? Remember what we spoke about, people? So now, when, now the employee is saying, oh, wait a minute. Um... I don't have to deal with the prying eyes of my superiors. I don't have to deal with the same environment where you are around, surrounded by people. Because let me tell you something. This idea that your job becomes your family is a, is a flat out lie. Most of us work at jobs where we're moving. No one told us that we were supposed to leave our job every two to three years for more money. No one told us that, that after two, three years, if you're not getting a commensurate wage and raise that's commensurate with your job at the time, then you're supposed to leave. No one told us that. No one told me that. But that's how you're really supposed to do it. I didn't I never spoke to a, a recruiter or a headhunter or a business counselor that told me that early on in life. My family are immigrants and they were taught find the job, get the job, keep the job and be happy you have the job. So everyone was taught to work at the same job for 40 years, for 40 hours a week, and then retire on 40% of that. that. That's the shtick. That's the American life. No one said every two, three years bounce. You know what happens when you leave every two, three years? That means you don't, you, you, you don't have roots there. When you leave certain jobs, you, you are out of sight, out of mind, and many of the people there are out of sight, out of mind. Everyone there is strategic. You're supposed to be there to utilize the mental technical equity of the people around you and that's what usually happens usually happens when you leave a job after four five six seven eight nine ten years you may if you're lucky have one quote unquote friend one person that will reach out to you a year after you've left that job now with social media and facebook and other things we have the semblance of being connected but are you really connected are you going out to coffee with these people are you going out for to lunch with these people hmm? are you going to the are you being invited to these people's barbecues and birthday parties and significant family events family life occurrences no they're not calling you and you're not calling them that's the reality of work that those are not your family they're not your friends they are your co-workers they are your professional colleagues that's who they are and that's how most of them are you're lucky if you get a friend out of that bunch. Lucky. You're fortunate. Good for you. But what you really want is a functional, prosperous, working relationship. That's what you really want. You have friends. Every one of you is there to make money, to earn a living, doing what they want to do or doing what they have to do. That's what this is about. 
So you're telling me a person can say, I don't have to even be in that dynamic the same way? Having to be in physical proximity to a bunch of strangers that I dislike, maybe, or that dislike me? Just like you had to do going on the train. Yeah, I was on the train for a decade. Okay. Oftentimes I would have a job for a year or two or three and I would see the same cast of characters on that bus and the same cast of characters on that train in the morning going to Manhattan and in the evening leaving Manhattan to go back into Queens. I never made a friend on that route. Think about that for a moment, people. Remember, we had a, a show called Who Is In Your Village? And I spoke in 2020. I'm sorry, in 2021. I had the conversation on this platform. Who's in your village? I said, get accustomed now to knowing the people that you never got a chance to know. You're going on a cigarette break now because you're in your house. And now you go outside to have a cigarette or you go outside to walk the dog, you take a 10-minute break to let your dog out, and you have other neighbors. Now you have neighbors that live above you, below you, next to you, to your left, to your right, or across the street from you. They're doing the exact same thing. This is an opportunity to find out who the people are in your neighborhood and find out what your village is and what is the values of people in your village because guess what? Most people have no idea what's going on at home because you're spending most of the daytime surrounded by strangers. I'm on a, tr on a bus for 25 minutes surrounded by strangers that never become acquaintances, never become colleagues, never become friends. Then I get on a train for another hour with a bunch of people that will never become colleagues, acquaintances, or friends. And you do that every day, back and forth, for years. And then you enter into jobs where at the very, at the most, those people will become acquaintances, most times. That's all you have. And then you go home and then you lock the door behind you and everyone else goes into their own individual truths and realities. And you never get to know who are the people in your neighborhood in your neighborhood you don't get to know what's going on in your village you don't get to know what's going on in your school system you don't get to know what's going on with your local politics you don't get to know how your city's being zoned or what's going to enter it just happens to you because you're preoccupied with everything else because you're spending eight to ten hours making everyone else rich and making their lives plentiful except your own here is the first time in a half a century that American work, the American worker gets to actually have a say in the quality of their daytime hours. Their daytime hours have been dominated by their professions. I remember the days when I used to have to commute into Manhattan in the dark because it was 6 a.m., 6.30 a.m., Winter time, it was dark at 6.30 going into Manhattan. And then when you get into Manhattan, the skyscrapers block the sun. So you know it's daytime, but you don't get to see the sun. But you know it's daytime. 
And then by the time you get off of work, it's dark again. And that would happen for months. A quarter of my year was spent like that. The winter months. Spent in that dynamic. Day in and day out. And now that the American worker has options, they're being demonized for it. The options that the business world and the tech, the, the tech sector and the futurists told them this day was, was, was right around the corner. But they must use four decades. They must use right around the corner or it's, it's soon. They use words like soon and right around the corner, uh, I guess, more liberally than I do. Because if I was living in the 80s, I was thinking that in five years, 10 years, this is going to be my reality. If I was living in the 90s, I was going to think five, 10 years, that's going to be my reality. No, it wasn't. For the majority of workers, it took 35 years to get to this day where they get to actually be productive in familiar, friendly surroundings. And they're being demonized for it. So when this one person said um, they were confused at the entitlement of the American worker, thinking that they should be able to work from home. I said, nothing's confusing about it. This is me verbatim. I said, nothing's confusing about it. The average new car price is $48,000. The average used car price is $33,000. When you live in a country that has virtually no public transportation to speak of, Purchasing a vehicle that's priced on par with the average salary, there's no wonder people would rather work from home than to tack on that expense. Let's also consider wardrobe costs, the cost of childcare, the longer commutes from metro centers because the average worker cannot afford to live near their job. This is not about entitlement. For many, it's about the viability and sustainability of the options presented. The average worker is saving at the very least 20% of their income by not having to accrue the costs associated with commuting to an office daily. Couple that with being able to spend more time with their children, community, and the ability to multitask, we cannot have a real conversation about work-life balance without seriously considering the hybridized work model and the shortened work day, work week. No balance will occur with a five days on at eight hours a day and two days off model. The American child is in crisis. The American parent is in crisis because they're overworked, underpaid, overcommuted, and their children are undersupervised. Hey guys, what do you think about that statement? Was I wrong? Had to send that out. That, that, that person in turn has reached out to me in, in my messaging. I'm not going to share that because that's private. But, you know, publicly, that's what I said to him. And then several other people reached out to me and asked me, was I in the economic sector? I was like, nah, nah, that, that's, that's not what I do. Okay, that, that's not what I do. So in turn, this is what's important. I'm speaking to them about the things that are important to the worker. Because guess what? The person that was speaking just happened to be what? A capital investor of real estate in the Northeast. So he has a lot to lose by the American worker empowering themselves. 
he stands to lose a little bit of money in the in the short term because he makes money by helping people develop businesses, etc., etc., blah, blah, blah. You get what I'm saying? But I also said something else. This conversation now about people working from home, if we're serious about work-life balance, this shouldn't be that big of a conversation. And if the American worker has proven to be as productive at home as they are at work, this shouldn't be a conversation. With the technology that you have available, you can have certain security provisions put in place to make sure that no proprietary software or, or, or information is, is, is divvied up, divvied up and, and seen or, 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 or exposed um, to people that aren't, um, I guess, uh, qualified to look at the information or not allowed to look or have permission to look or view certain information and practices. But this is what technology was for. This is this. It was supposed to free everyone. So now someone can do 10 minutes of yoga because they just got off a bad Zoom call and they can put their yoga mat out and just relax a second or meditate or, or stare at a candle or whatever the hell it is people do at home. I know what I do at home when I'm working. It's awesome. I get to go to my coffee, uh, luncheons, my business meetings and conversations. I get to have Zoom calls. I have those. I actually have had uh, coffee Zoom calls where someone on the other, um, the, the, the people there are all uh, drinking their favorite beverage from the, from, the, from the comforts of their favorite place to be, whether it's in a park or a coffee shop or restaurant. Uh, whatever they some people rent out little office space little hybridized workspaces in the library or other places like that and um uh or home their home offices and we all talk about what we're drinking you understand and all of this is okay people all of this is okay we're entering into another realm and it's okay there are going to be certain corrections. Yes, certain businesses are going to fail. The same way the American worker was given the shaft and failed in, in many, many parts of America. The majority of American factories are shut down even though we need to build things. But we don't want to pay the American worker to build those things. And then America won't allow people like myself to go reappropriate some of these factories and use them because they still actually have stuff in there that can be used. You want to know why I know that? Because I've tried. I said, you know what? I remember saying to myself, all these factories, I mean, maybe I can't afford all of it, but how about a bunch of businesses use it? Just like in, 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 in parts of Asia, your Nikes and your Adidas and all of your factory are coming off of the same conveyor belt. Your name brands are coming off of the same exact conveyor belt and oftentimes are using the same exact material. The only difference is the logo. Between Junior Bobrun designs and John Smith's designs, the difference is the logo. It's coming off of the same conveyor belt, and oftentimes it's going to the same department stores. It's getting brought here on the same ships and boats and trucks when it gets here. So I said, how come, you know, U.S. doesn't create a certain system where a bunch of businesses can get together that want to get into manufacturing and take over the factories that big business left behind? And then we can hire the people in those communities and then we can have flourishing micro businesses. Just break it up. Okay, you decided to leave. What's the contingency? No contingency, just like with the shutdowns. No contingency, no conversation. They just let it happen. They just did it. 
Big business was big business's only obligation is to its shareholders. That's the Friedman way. If we're going to follow Friedman, Friedman economics, Milton Friedman's economics, if we're going to follow University of Chicago School of Economics, uh, uh, capitalism's job and a big business's job, has, it, it, it has no obligation to the people. That's government's job. Its job, the only people that government uh, uh, corporations are uh, subservient to or, or, or have to create covenants with are shareholders. So if it makes more sense or makes more dollars, not sense, but makes more dollars for my shareholders than if I have to strangle a whole community and move, move from Columbus, Ohio to Cambodia, then fine. That's what it's going to be. And that's been the modus operandi for as long as we can remember. That's been what it is. Now, all the American workers saying is, I can't afford these cars. I can't afford this child care. I can't afford these commutes. Um, it makes more sense for me to be at home. I get to see my kids grow up because haven't we had this conversation? America's failing its own. Did we not have the conversation about the fact that both parents now working outside of the home? Who's watching the babies? The internet? Social media? You know, America's always had guns. You, you were able to buy a gun from a bank. You, you open up a checking account, they give you a shotgun. How come there weren't mass shootings then? Just saying. America's always had pistols. No matter what unrest was going on in the United States, America always went to the gun store to make sure that they were armed to the teeth in most of the country. In the 1960s, they armed themselves to the teeth. In the 50s, they armed themselves to the teeth. When we were worrying about communists and socialists and everyone else coming in, armed themselves to the teeth. But America wasn't going around shooting. 20-year-old boys weren't going around shooting everybody. Hmm? 18, 16, 17-year-old kids weren't coming to school shooting, shooting their classmates, were they? Not at hmm, what changed? Hmm, maybe, maybe the fact that, you know, who, who's watching the babies? While both parents are at work, no one wants to have this conversation. Working women, working families, this is where I always tell people, if you listen to me long enough, you're not going to be happy with me. But that's what that's where, you know, I'm telling the truth, because to be honest means that you are going to offend. Period. And you are going to offend certain people's proclivities, you know, their ideology, because I guarantee you many, many people were with me. Yeah, working from home. Mom gets to be with their kids. Mom gets to be with the kids. It's awesome. Work from home. And then as soon as I get into the fact that, yeah, maybe we need to have a bigger, better salary for the men. So the women can stay home like they traditionally did, because guess what? That model didn't produce a, 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 a very uber violent juvenile contingency, a contingent. I mean, just saying. Just saying, I don't I, I'm, I may veer into that later, but I veered into it before. America is failing its kids because both parents can't even afford to have a kid. Both parents can't even afford to be single, let alone married, and let alone bring another person into that d dilemma. The wage being stagnant brought the woman from the house into the workforce. And now the woman is out there saying, we need better child care. Well, the child was born with two parents. How much more care do you need? Respectfully. And I'm saying that respectfully. The child was born with two parents. 
if you didn't create a village around that child, that's not the government's fault. That's your fault. You have to take some blame for that. So when I hear about people wanting affordable child care and this, that, and the third, so you can go back to the office, no, you shouldn't even ask to go back to the office. Going back to the office should not be a plan for one of the parents. One of the parents should make it their responsibility or their obligation and make it a mandate that they spend the first formative four or five years of that child's life with that child during the daytime hours. If you want to get child care, get night care. While the child sleep, then you go get a gig. Because the child's going to be sleeping anyway. All I'm introducing to everyone right now is a different way of doing things because the way we're, we were doing things has proven to be unsustainable. So this shutdown or whatever it was, the one shining bright light that could be gleaned from this is that technology finally kept its promise to the actual worker. Where the worker that does have the skills to stay home can stay home. Can work from their home and, and maybe take a class from their home. And, and uh, while working on one thing on their lunch break, I'm, I'm taking care of my homework for that class that I have to submit. I'm doing homework. I'm doing the, you get to guess what work and find out more about yourself. Employers didn't like that. Employers wanted you to be in there, immersed in the culture that they created. So you didn't have time for anything else until the sun was down. You know what sundown means? It means your mind is supposed to be at rest. That's why even with dementia patients and Alzheimer's patients, they have something called sundowning. When the sun sets and the sun goes down, their cognitive abilities you know, are compromised. And they're not the same person at 6 p.m. that they were at 12 p.m. They're sundowning. But there's some truth to that as human beings. When the sun goes down and now it's time for candlelight for a while, then you go to sleep. You read, or you write, and then, you, and then you rest your mind. That's what it's supposed to be. So it's not, so it's very difficult for you to work six, seven, eight, nine hours per Sunday, per day, and then to come home and do your own thing and find out what you're really about. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. And jobs know that. And employers know that because they're looking for good foot soldiers to just, you know, follow, the, follow their orders and be good Germans for the next two, three, four decades. And, uh, or until the job decides they no longer need you and you're no longer of value to us that we would pay you what you've been paid. And a lot of people who listen to me can, 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 can relate to that. But when you get to work from home, you get to open up another Google tab and go, hey, what if I want to do this? I want to try that. You go on YouTube and you go, wait a minute, I, I, I want to get into that. I'm going to look into that. And you realize that all of that can happen simultaneously while you're working for someone else. You can start upping your skills in other areas and arenas and become this renaissance person that technology always told you you were going to be 30, 40, 50 years ago. You get to have all of these multiple endeavors and be renaissance and, 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 and furnish and flourish your other ideas and your hobbies. All of these side hustles you have now in this country where you can 
due to technology, you can have uh, several streams of passive income. Wasn't possible before. So people are saying, why am I, why am I going to that office to make fifty, sixty thousand dollars before taxes? And I have to pay for a car. I have to pay for this. I would rather have two, three hustles paying me $20,000 a year and I'm just doing what I want to do on my time and not doing what you want to do. It's not a free-for-all. You have to be even more structured and disciplined when you are entering into endeavors that you create. You have to be your own boss and get up at eight and rush to your computer and rush and, and, and create these tasks, then implement these tasks, execute these tasks, and be able to have the acumen to realize what works and what doesn't work and what's the best value of your time. That ain't easy, but there's a lot of people now that are like, I'd rather do that. Say, I, I got three hustles. Each one of them pay me 20000 So combined is, is what I would have been paid going to this office with these strangers, commuting on a bus with strangers to and from work, commuting on a train with strangers to and from work, commuting on a highway or freeway or intersection with strangers every day, and then going to a job with strangers every day. I don't know who is friend or foe in here because oftentimes we've asked people at our jobs to have our back and what happened. They're like, yo, man, I got a family to feed. Hey, man, we should strike. We should do this. We should do this. We should do. Are you down? You want to put your name on this piece of paper so we can take it to the employer and let them know that we're united? You know, a people united will never be defeated. And they go, hmm? how many of those names you get to sign that? How many? I've been there, people. So right now, it's, it's a day of applause for the employee. Who's, a la who's working from home right now. And if you really enjoy working from home right now, you continue to do that and, and find the gigs and find the jobs that will allow you to do that. Because it makes, if we're going to have a real conversation about saving the mental health of adults and children, then you cannot grind them down to the bone the way you've been grinding them down to the bone over the last century. Can't do it. And I, when I say century, I don't mean the 21st century. Over the last, let's say, 100 years, can't grind them down. You can't just make th that much money and pay them nothing, wrangle and wrestle over $15 an hour. Wrestling with employers, employees over $15, $20 an hour. No, 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 no. And expect work-life balance. Hey, how do we create work-life balance? I hear this from all of the press. I hear it from these banal, benign reporters. You want work-life balance? Guess what? You have to give people as much of a life as they have work. So if you're working four days on, you have to have three consecutive days off. The work day has to be reduced from eight to six. That's, that's just the beginning. Maternity and paternity leave have to be at more than... A, a, a woman's maternity leave should be a year. Yeah, she should be able to spend a year off of work with this baby. And then we won't have the same kind of concerns about child care, the affordability of child care, because you can't afford child care in this country. 
guess what? You'll never be able to afford childcare in this country because most people that are spending $800 to $1,000 a month, they're outsourcing parenting to a bunch of $10 an hour employees. For childcare to make any sense and to be actually viable, a childcare worker that is protecting the most important part of your life, which is your offspring, and the most important part of a society, which is its future, that worker should be getting paid no less than 20 bucks an hour. How affordable do you think childcare is going to be then? When you decide to take the wage outside of the, uh, increase it above the average pay of a drive-through fast food employee what happens then when we all realize that the child care worker is grossly and egregiously underpaid that they need to get paid double even to make that job viable what do you think your child care costs are going to be then how much is the government going to have to subsidize that how much of of businesses are going to have to subsidize and when i say government i don't mean government Taxpayers are going to have to subsidize that. No. But if you increased the wage of the male in the relationship, it would allow the female. It would allow the female to be able to stay home with the child. And if, especially if, the, if that parent had, let's say, instead of getting their full salary off maternity leave, let's say they were getting... 40 to 60% of their salary. So you're getting 60% of your salary to stay home. Your husband is making money. Your domestic partner is making more money because he is now a parent and you're paying him more commensurate to that addition to their life. Guess what? You won't need affordable childcare because the mama's there. The two people who gave birth to this child, who created this child, will be empowered in and of themselves. No need for subsidies. But if, if, the, if, the, if the name of the game is going to be keep wages down so you can keep profits up, th the conversation becomes a circular conversation with no end in sight. We're going to have this conversation a little later on. I I'm thinking that I'm going to break this up into pieces. I truly, truly believe that that this is going to have to be broken up into pieces because I have a couple of other things I want to say. But b before I conclude, I just want to say that I'm very, very happy for the work from home uh, uh, opportunity that has been, that was, that, that was created, not because the American worker wanted it, not because the American government wanted it, not because capital wanted it, business class wanted it, because it was an offshoot of the occurrences on the ground. The government shut everything down, and the one bright spot of this is people actually seeing a viable alternative, and the viable alternative now is in stone. You have the four-day four work week that has been proven to be a resounding success in many sectors. You have the work-from-home uh, dynamic that has proven to be a resounding success because you're having the same level of productivity, if not more. Yes, there are certain adults that complain they want to be around other people and there's a certain level of isolation okay i get that but by and large people are saying i ain't going back there <laughs> that's why the offices remain empty people aren't clamoring to get back into those cubicles with no sun 
Right now, where I'm working right now, I have windows that are practically from floor to ceiling. I am looking directly at the bluest of blue skies and sun. How many people can say that when they're at work? My laptop is facing, like I face daylight all day. All day. When I remember what I spoke about, Manhattan, leave the house at 6, 630 in the morning. It's dark in the winter. Leave the job at 5, 6, 630 in the, in the evening. It's dark. And I'm in a cubicle. And the only people who get windows and sunshine are senior manager and executives. They're the only ones that deserve to see the day all day. I only get to see the day when I'm on my lunch break. And I got to go down God knows how many elevator steps. And then I got to go run to some deli or diner that has a long line of people that are in the same dilemma as me. So by the time I get down 30 floors from this corporate skyscraper to the ground floor, go to my favorite. That's if I'm in an area that actually has food. Many parts of Manhattan, it's just building after building after building. And there isn't any food around. You have to go a little further. But so by the time I walk a Manhattan block or two or three and order what I'm going to order, I'm eating it while running back to the office. And what I just mentioned is the life of the majority of employees in Manhattan who live in the outer boroughs. Or you have to bring in your own lunch and prep that and et cetera, et cetera. Now people are eating while working at their desk or not, et cetera, et cetera. It's an amazing, brave new world to be able to see the sun. Because before that, we were in cubicles in the middle of a, of a work floor with cameras over our head and microphones on our checking up on us. And only people who got windows were people who were senior executives. Oh, you get the window. You get the corner office. Oh, I get a window. Whoop-dee-woo. And like I said, you don't get to see the sun in Manhattan. The, the, the buildings decided that we don't need sun. They scrape the sky and they preclude your view of the sun. But you just know it's daytime. Right now, I see the sun. As I speak to you right now, I'm looking at a beautiful blue sky. I'm looking at the sun. And it's wonderful. And it's awesome. So anyone trying to take that away from you, calling you entitled after what the American worker has gone through in this country over the last four or five decades. They want to call you entitled. Instead of instead of using your leverage, what little leverage you have, because you barely have any leverage. There's many, many jobs that are saying come into the office or else you don't have a job. They're doing it. A lot of people in the tech sector, these, these, these men and women that are just accustomed to looking at screens and don't really have a quality of life. Their, their life is about, you know, the nature of numbers and code and technology. So many of them can't even relate. But if they wanted to, they can work from anywhere because they have the ability to. All I'm saying is people out there that are working from home do not relinquish this opportunity lightly. I said it from 2021 and I said it I said it in 2020 when I started seeing this occur. I said it in 2021. I said it all throughout 2022 and I'm saying it now. 
I'm saying it now because March will be the end of end of March is the end of the first quarter of the corporate new year. And I'm saying do not relinquish this fight to keep this model tooth and nail. Do the job that was assigned to you. Do it to the best of your ability and enjoy your life. And on that note, until we speak again.